As mentioned already, the sermon this afternoon is on the truth of the Word of God concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we find a summary of this in Lord's Day 17 of the Heidelberg Catechism. This is on page 531 in the Book of Praise. We read there, How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he has obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are raised up to a new life. And third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. After the sermon, we will sing in response to the preaching of the Word of God, we'll sing Hymn 32, Hymn 32 after the sermon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in one of our readings for this afternoon, the one, for, the one from 1 Corinthians 15, we heard about the, the glorious nature of our own resurrection. You know, what is that going to look like when we ourselves rise from the dead at the return of Christ? And the, of course, this is in connection with the third benefit that's described in Lord's Day 17. So the third one is that Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection, something that is happening in the future. But earlier in that chapter, before describing this wonder of our own resurrection, Paul insists on the importance of believing in the first place that Christ did in fact rise from the dead. And I'm going to read a few verses uh, from earlier in the chapter. I'm going to read the verses 12 through 19 and we can gain an appreciation for the importance of this doctrine, the fact that Christ did, in fact, rise from the dead. So chapter 15, verses 12 through 19, Paul argues here in, in response to claims that there is no resurrection of the dead. Paul argues here, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen to this. He says, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised." For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. You know, as Christians, we tend to put an awful lot of weight 
and emphasis and attention on the atoning work of Christ. We profess that he suffered for us, that he was crucified, that he was sacrificed for the washing of our sins so that we could be forgiven. And to many, this is the singular fundamental truth of Christianity. It's the first and most basic thing that we would confess. You ask somebody whether they're a Christian and what that means, and the most basic response that you would probably get is that, yes, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. You might be taken aback if someone's response, you know, are you a Christian, if their response was instead of, yes, I believe that Jesus died for me, what if their response was, yes, I'm a Christian, I believe that Jesus rose for me. I believe that Jesus rose for me. And yet it seems like that might be the more appropriate response. This was the central testimony of the apostles. The central message of the apostles after Pentecost as they went around Jerusalem and as the gospel spread, the central message was not a message of a crucified and dead Messiah. The message was one of a risen Messiah. Jesus lives. That was the hope that gave, that was the message that gave hope to the lost. Are you a Christian? Yes. I believe that Jesus rose for me. And so the theme for this afternoon is that Jesus' resurrection is the foundation of our hope. We'll see three aspects. First, it confirms our justification. Second, it brings about our sanctification. And third, it guarantees our glorification. Now those are three words that, all, that each have five syllables each. They're big words. They're theological words. So we're going to take a pause um, at each point and briefly define those things too so that we know what we're talking about. So we can recognize here that the resurrection of Christ has benefits that affect our past, our present, and our future. Because of his resurrection, we have been justified in the past. We are being sanctified in the present, and we will be glorified in the future. Christ's resurrection has a bearing on all three of these aspects of the Christian life. So in the first place here, Jesus' resurrection confirms our justification. Okay, what does justification mean? Well, the way I learned it when I was a kid was that if I have been justified... That's what justification is. That's when you are justified. If I have been justified, then that means that God looks at me, justified, never sinned. That's kind of a cute way to, to understand what justification means. If you are justified, it means that God treats you as if you never sinned at all, as if you have always been perfect and blameless. There's there's no wrongdoing ever, and you are innocent before God. God looks at me justified, never sinned. So I'm right with God. So that's justification. Jesus' resurrection has a bearing on that. So we read from Romans chapter 6 earlier, and there we could see very particular emphases on the nature of our union with Christ. What does it mean that we are united to Christ? What effect does that have 
on our life. And if we were to draw some, some distinctions from Paul's teaching there in that chapter of Romans, well then, this is what the distinction might look like for us if we're, if we're dividing stuff into categories. So first we see that we are united to Christ in his death, and that means that our old nature is put to death and done away with. If we flip back to Romans chapter 6, those two aspects are, are very clear. Uh, verse 3, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So we were buried with him by baptism into death. Okay, so not only, so, so that means that our old nature, the one that we're born with, the one that we inherit from our sinful parents, that nature is united to Christ and is buried with him and it is put to death. It's, it's no longer, it goes away. So not only our, our old nature is put to death and done away with, but also our sins themselves are removed from us and, and punished through his crucifixion because of Jesus' atoning sacrifice. And so this is, this is part of how we appear righteous before God. And then we see, so the other thing that Paul brings up is not only is our old nature put to death and um, united to Christ in his death, but now our new nature is also united to Christ in his resurrection. Old nature united to Christ in his death. New nature united to Christ in his resurrection. So that's, that's sort of the distinction that we tend to hold. Christ's death means we're justified. And Christ's resurrection is our sanctification. So that's our new life, our, our, our holiness before God. But if we look back at Lord's Day 17 and we review those, those three benefits here, the first one concerns our justification. We'll read that first section again. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, <clears throat> by his resurrection he has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he has obtained for us by his death. So this is saying that our righteousness or our, our being right with God, our being right with God doesn't simply come about by our union with Christ in his death. It also depends on his resurrection. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then we cannot share in his righteousness. And that's exactly what we read just a moment ago in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 14 there, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. So even though there's two different emphases there, so first with, with Romans 6 and then in in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is saying exactly the same thing. But we have to ask that question, why is it that way? Why is it necessary that Christ would have to rise from the dead in order for you to be declared right with God? In order for God to look at you and say, this one is innocent. This one is free of sin, free of all guilt. Why is Christ's resurrection 
necessary for that. Isn't it enough that, that Christ died and paid the penalty, paid for our sins? Kind of a tricky question. Well, we have to consider what it would mean what would it mean if Christ didn't rise from the dead? What conclusions would we have to draw? Well, if Christ died as the sacrifice for our sins and then stayed dead, if he did that, well, then our sins could not be paid for. They would not be paid for. Peter preaches to the crowd in Acts chapter 2. He says, God raised him up, so Christ, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus Christ had to rise. As our mediator, he had to defeat death completely. Completely. And this is because of the very close union between sin and and death. That's very important for us to realize. We have to understand the relationship, the union between sin and death. If Christ dies and stays under the power of death, then that means that sins are not paid for. Zacharias Ursinus, who is the, the main author of the Heidelberg Catechism, he also wrote a commentary on this catechism and he explains this point had Christ not risen from the dead so if if Jesus stayed dead then we could not have known that he satisfied for us for this would have been a certain argument that he had not made this satisfaction but instead was overcome by death and the burden of sin, because where death is, there is sin. If Christ is not raised, then our sins are not paid for. And so the weight of this testimony that Christ lives, the proclamation that Jesus lives this is the triumph of Christ because it testifies to the fact that Christ not only died as a payment for our sins, but that he was successful in making that payment. He completely paid for our sins. He experienced the full wrath of God. He was forsaken of the Father while on the cross, while our sins were on him. He died, but his work was completed. The payment was made, and because the wages of our sins were completely paid for, guess what? Death could not hold him. Death could not hold him any longer. This is the promise that was made in the Old Testament about the work of the future Savior. This is what we sang from before the sermon. Psalm 16, this is also, this is quoted by Peter in that very same passage from Acts 2. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Why? For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. 
This was the promise that death would not be able to subdue our Messiah. He paid for our sins with his death, and his resurrection proved that it was successful. It proved that he is declared righteous, free from the sins that were placed on him. And so now his righteousness is able to be given to you as a free gift. What a beautiful Lord we serve, this Jesus. The fact that he would suffer for us, that he would die for us, but the fact that he now lives and brings us into unity with himself and confers all of these benefits on us. And he does this by causing his spirit to live in us. We have this real spiritual union with Christ, and this is how we're able to share in the things that he's won for us. This is something Jesus taught about while he was performing his earthly ministry, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at the Feast of Tabernacles. In John 7, 37 through 39, he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John explains there, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus rose from the dead, glorified, and now he gives his Spirit to unite us to himself. And what's the effect of that? What's the effect of him living in us through his Spirit? Well, that's our second point. We are born again, we're regenerated, we're able to live a sanctified life. Our second point, Jesus' resurrection brings about our sanctification. All right, another five-syllable word, sanctification. Sanctification is... so. Your sanctification is the act of God making you holy once again. That's, that's where that, that word comes from, sanctification. The root there is sanctus. That's where we get the name for uh, a, a, a room like a sanctuary. A sanctuary is a sanctus place. It's a holy place. It's where we get the name, or the word saint. A saint is a holy person. You are all saints. Saints in Christ Jesus. If you are sanctified, it means that you are being more and more restored to the image of holy God, righteous, righteousness and holiness. That's, let's flip very quickly to uh, Lord's Day 3. Lord's Day 3 this talks about our state of creation. It says that God created man good and in his image, that is in true righteousness and holiness. That was the state of our creation. And when we are sanctified, it means that we are being restored to that original state. We're being made righteous and holy. Okay, sanctification, that's what that means. So now in our reading of Romans 6, in our reading of Romans 6, Paul is urging the church to be serious about 
the reality of our new nature. To really understand what it means, yes, that we are united to Christ and that our old nature is crucified, but what does it mean that, that our new nature is made alive in Christ? In, in verse 4 there, verse 4, Romans 6, verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And this, so this second one corresponds to the second benefit that's listed in Lord's Day 17. Second, by his power, we too are raised up to a new life. That's what sanctification means. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So we're being restored with those qualities that were lost with the fall into sin. So this new life, this new life is a holy life. It's a life that's dedicated to God, a life where we, by the power of the Holy Spirit who now lives in us, we are able to be righteous and holy once again. We're able to love God and love one another as we're commanded. Now, how does that work? How does that work? Well, I spoke a little while ago about that close relationship between sin and death, and that was regarding our justification. If, if sin is paid for completely, well, then death no longer has power. Well, now we have to flip that around because the inverse is also true. Consider our present life. Paul's teaching there that we have died with Christ. Now, what does that mean? If we have truly died, think about this. If we have truly died, then sin no longer has mastery over us. Right? If there is no sin, then that means death has no power. And if you have truly died, well then... Sin no longer has mastery over you. This is what we read in Romans 6, 9 and 10. We'll read that once again. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So death is stripped of its power. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And I'll read verse 11 too. So you also must, listen to this, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Right? So, so when we lived according to our old nature, so let's pretend for a second that, that we have not been saved by Christ yet. So let's pretend that right now we're we're unconverted, we're living according to our sinful nature, when we're living according to that way, then sin basically is our slave driver. Slave is our master, and we're powerless against it. We're enslaved to sin, completely powerless to make sin stop dominating us. We can't make sin, we, we can't get sin to stop making us yield to its influence. There's nothing we can do about it. We're completely powerless against it. And so now the question is, the question is, 
if sin has this hold on you and this power over you, what is the one thing, what's the one thing that makes sin let go? What's the one thing that makes sin release its grip on you? It's your death. It's the only thing. The only way that sin lets go is when you finally die. This is something Paul explains in the next chapter, in chapter 7. Really, it's, it's hard to just take one chunk of Romans because it's one gigantic, beautiful argument. But Paul explains this. He goes on in chapter 7. The law is only in force as long as someone is alive. So Jesus Christ, in uniting us to himself in his death, think about this. When, when Christ says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to connect you to me and then die so that you are dying along with me, he's making this ingenious way for us to be able to die without actually dying. Okay? He's making a way for us to be legally accounted as dead so that sin has to let go of us. So that sin can no longer have dominion over you and reign over you and make you do whatever it wants. We have died to sin. And because of that, we have been given a rebirth, a new life, living by the Spirit of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. New life, new day. And this is who we are today. People who have been made alive by Christ by the power of His Spirit. Christ rose, was glorified, and gives His Spirit to each of us. And so now you, you can look around, look around right now at the people that are sitting around you and you know, what do you see? You're surrounded by people who have died. That's how you should be considering each other. You should be considering each other as though you, you've all gone to each other's funerals already. You said goodbye to that old nature. We're surrounded by people like Today, in this room, we are surrounded by people who have been raised from the dead. Raised from the dead spiritually. That's what regeneration is. That's recreation. And maybe you think I'm kind of going overboard here or exaggerating, but I'm not. Not at all. This is how Canons of Dort, so this is chapter 3, 4, and then if you look at articles, let's say 11 through 13, this is talking about the mysterious work of regeneration. But that's the language that we find in our confession. That regeneration, recreation, rebirth, this coming alive in Christ spiritually 
it is no less miraculous than creation itself. It's no less powerful and awe-inspiring than the raising of a dead body. That's how amazing it is that you guys are all sitting here today believing in Christ. It's a, it's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. We've been raised to a new life because our mediator, Jesus Christ, has been raised. That's the only reason it's possible. That's how he's able to give us these wonderful benefits of his work. It's because he took on our nature to suffer and die for us as our covenant head. And so the work that he does, he does in our place and on our behalf. He rose so that we could be justified, so that we could be right with God. And he rose so that we could be sanctified, so that we could have this new life, so that we could be found holy and new before God. And he rose so that we will be glorified because he, our head, is glorified. And that's briefly, briefly our third point. His resurrection guarantees our glorification. <clears throat> so glorification, that's another five-syllable word. But I don't think that one really needs a ton of explanation we can recognize there that glorification means you know, being made very glorious. So more glorious than we are now. We're going to be upgraded somehow in, in our nature. So we have actually very little revealed in God's word about what exactly we'll be like on that side of glory. And Maybe this is simply because this is something that is so far beyond our ability to understand. It's something that is, you know, impossible for us to weigh. It's that wonderful, and that's why there's not so much said about it. In 1 Corinthians 15, this was our reading concerning our future resurrection and glorification. Paul says there, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. We will be changed. Precisely into what? We can't say for sure. But we know that you will be you, and I will be me, and the bodies that we have right now today are the bodies that we're going to have, only they will be more glorious. They will be glorified. They will be made imperishable, incorruptible, perfect, and flawless. And how do we know for sure that this is going to happen? Well, it's because of what was just mentioned. That Jesus Christ himself has been glorified. Jesus Christ became a man. 
And so he still has our human nature. And because of that, he continues to function as our mediator. The things that he's doing, he's doing in our place. As our head, he steps into our office as humankind, and he completed everything that was necessary so that mankind could be acceptable to God. When we think about Christ's work as our mediator, we have to think about it sort of as if we are riding on his coattails because of our union with him, and we're reaping all of the benefits because of everything that he is doing for us. He was raised in glory, and because he has our flesh, he's doing this in our place because we're united to him. We also will be raised in glory. That's where we're headed. That's our future. And so now the question for us is, you know, how does it help us today that we know that that's coming? Like, so what? There's something happening in our future. How does that, how does that change our outlook today? How does that change how we approach, you know, whatever challenges and afflictions and hardships we experience in our life? Well, we are encouraged, especially in the middle of hardships, knowing that these things are leading to that glory. Our God, he gives us words of comfort by holding out the hope of that resurrection. And this is something that we're assured of in Romans 8, verse 18. The sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing they're not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. They don't even compare. It's like, it's like taking a, a scale, a scale that is, let's say, it's, it's the biggest scale in the world. It's designed to weigh the heaviest things on earth. It's designed to weigh a mountain. So you could, you could weigh Mount Everest on this scale, and you could mount, uh, uh, weigh K2 on this scale, and you can you know, understand the difference between the two. That's how big this scale is. Or even, you know, think even bigger than that. It's a, it's a scale that's designed to weigh whole planets, so you could weigh the, the weight of Earth against the weight of you know, Mars or whatever. So you take that scale, and then you go and you try to weigh a little grain of sand on it. Well, it's not even going to register, is it? That grain of sand is not even going to register on that scale. That's how insignificant our present sufferings will seem at that time. That's the magnitude of the glory that we will experience the glory of God that we will live in. And this isn't to diminish our sufferings. This isn't to say that they're nothing, because they're not. This isn't to dismiss the pain that we feel when, when our bodies break down, when our bodies become infected with diseases. It doesn't diminish the sorrow that's in our hearts when 
when we experience loss or, or betrayal, this doesn't diminish and negate this you know, smothering cloud of depression that can cripple us. Those things are real. You know, go tell somebody that, they're, that their suffering is nothing and it doesn't mean anything. No, it's real. It's heavy. It's very heavy stuff. But as heavy as it is, when, when placed on the scale that's designed to weigh glory, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't move it. It doesn't register. And so it also gives us the courage to be able to charge into these trials because we know what's on the other side of them. Who would, who would willingly just decide to run into the flames of a fire? Well, nobody. You don't do that. But if you're in danger of being caught in a, in a burning building and you know that just on the other side of those flames, that's perfect safety, well, then you're, you'll charge headfirst right into them in order to reach what's on the other side. What glory awaits us on the other side of every trial you know, that we're on? It's a beautiful thing that we're able to be reminded regularly of what we confess to be true. This statement, on the third day he arose from the dead, this is, this is part of the Apostles' Creed. This is something that we confess every single week. Every single week you guys have stood up and confessed, I believe what? That on the third day Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We have to believe it. What a tragedy if, if we couldn't say those words. What a tragedy if this were proven to be false. If we couldn't confess it, but it is true. It is true. We confessed it a little while ago this afternoon. It's such a precious confession. We know that because Christ rose from the dead, we're righteous before God. Because Christ rose from the dead, we now know that we can live in the way that he calls us to live. Because Christ rose from the dead, we know that our future is secure and it's awesome. Amen.
Let's thank our God in prayer. Father in heaven, we praise and we thank you for what has been declared to us once again that Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, was crucified, that he died, that he was buried, but on the third day he arose from the dead. What glorious news. We have a living Savior, a living Messiah, one who still acts for our benefit. We praise the name of Jesus Christ, and we pray that the fact and the news of his resurrection might be brought to bear in a very powerful way on our lives every single day. We pray that we would seek to live according to the new nature that he has conferred on us, that we would consider ourselves dead to sin, that that part of us is gone, and that sin has no say over us and has no power over us, that we would consider ourselves remade and able to live according to not only some, but to all of your commandments. We pray that you would watch over us in the coming week. Bless our comings and goings. We pray that you would bless the work of our hands so that we are able to provide, especially for those who are in need, and that we would support the well-being of this congregation and also the various ministries that are supported through this congregation. Father, we pray that you would forgive our sins for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. We'll sing in closing now, hymn 36, hymn 36.